Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Hi, welcome to Mindspace. This is uh, Jeff Boucher. I'm here with Maya St. Clair and our special guest co-host this week, Michael Giltz. How are you, Michael? Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> welcome to the show, show, show. <laughs> and uh, this is our Christmas revisitation. Last year we, we had you on and uh, we discussed a lot of Christmas pop culture and it was just so much fun that we thought we'd do it again. And this year we're going to do a deeper dive into one part, one aspect of uh, Christmas pop culture, and it is a doozy, a Christmas Carol, which uh, which premiered or debuted uh, 178 years ago this month, which is quite a while. It's quite a while. It is indeed, and of course, at the end of the show, Darlene Love will come out and sing "Christmas Baby, Please Come Home." So that's going to uh, be exciting. We don't want to exactly. miss that. It's an annual tradition. Exactly. Have you read um, a Christmas Carol? Exactly. And um, boy, A Christmas Carol, let's see. So it, it came out originally as a novella uh, by Charles Dickens, of course, and it premiered or it hit the stage less than um, six weeks later, the, yeah. the first adaptation. Like, you know, so that's a pretty quick turnaround. That's right. And, you know, it came out in December and in February of 1844, there were like multiple stage productions there was an authorized one and then there were multiple other productions that sprang up right away uh, the book wasn't hugely successful for dickens because it was really expensive to make he had really high standards he wanted gilded edged and this and that it was super expensive so he didn't make the money he wanted to off of it right off the bat but it was certainly popular right from the start and for the next five years he ended up writing a christmas novella pushing a social theme a theme of social justice every year uh it was a christmas carol and then the chimes the cricket on the hearth the battle of life and then the haunted man and those are his big five christmas novellas and i've read three of them and i'm here to tell you a christmas carol is by far the best <laughs> there's a reason there's a reason huh that it's uh it's endured so much that's right. And the others, the Chimes was very successful. The Cricket on the Hearth was successful. Uh, I think they all were relatively successful in terms of commercial publishing, but the others have not endured. And there's a good reason. I, I like Dickens a lot. I read, I've read a lot of his books. Uh, the, the Chimes really and the, the, the Cricket on the Hearth are, do not hold up very well at all. Uh, maybe he just needs more room to do his Dickensian stuff, but yeah. they're very heavy handed. They're very obvious. They're... Uh, just not as universal, I guess, as uh, Christmas Carol. The big difference in the first two is that in a Christmas Carol, you have a guy who's this miser, the scheming, grasping Ebenezer Scrooge, who gets visited by spirits because he has to learn to be a better person. Fine. In the second book, The Chimes, another man is visited by spirits. In this case, it's a poor man. This man is, is utterly poor 
defenseless. He's never harmed a flea, but he gets haunted by goblins from the chimes of the church bells who tell him he should have more faith in humanity because he's worried that people are, he's told so many awful things. He starts to believe maybe people are inherently bad. And so they put him through the ringer just because <laughs> this poor, simple little guy, you're like, good Lord, leave him alone. So wow. it was, it was a little odd, but all Man. the books had really strong social purposes taking care of children, taking care of charity, not letting people starve. Uh, Dickens, uh, you know, really didn't write these just to make money or just to have fun. He wrote them to send out a message. Yeah, and, and it was part of a, um, really sort of defining what the, the nature and possibility of charity was. Like it helped form charity in some ways. Like a lot of the charitable aspects of uh, um, Victorian England came about after. That's right. I mean, uh, there's been charity, of course, for thousands of years, but people saw it as sort of just this, you know, well, throw them in the poorhouse. Uh, but right. for Dickens, uh, his his novel, David Copperfield, is usually considered the most autobiographical. Uh, but in a way, A Christmas Carol, as I read about it, it sounds like it might be his most personal uh, mm -hmm. because his dad was not a miser. His dad spent money like a drunken sailor and, in fact, got thrown into debtor's prison. And that's why famously Dickens had to leave school at the age of 12. He had to go to work at this miserable factory with horrible working conditions. And that really lit a fire for him his whole life in terms of social justice and fighting for the poor and the underprivileged. And so in this book, when you have him talking about Scrooge, uh, it's sort of the fear of what he might be based on, you know, he loved and despised his father in a way and he was sort of scared of becoming a miser because he was so scared of not having money and in mm -hmm. fact when this when he wrote a christmas carol his last book martin chuzzlewood had flopped his publishers were threatened to cut back the money that they would advance him if the books continued underperforming and he was not a miser at all he was spending money in a big family and he was thinking he needed money he really needed yeah. money. And so he needed to publish something. And in six weeks, he turned out a Christmas Carol in sort of a frenzy. And in a kind of a Jimmy Stewart moment, his, he agreed to pay to publish the book himself more fully so he could get a bigger share of the profits. Oh, wow. What like George Lucas with the toys. That's right. Or Jimmy Stewart with his Western, where they said, well, we don't want to pay you a lot of money. So we'll just give you a cut of the gross. The first yeah. movie star to take a cut of the movie gross. So Dickens. Most publishing, I think, back then was done sort of self-publishing, mm. you know, semi-self-publishing. People, you paid people to publish your book in a way, yeah. most in most cases. But there was always an understanding and agreement. And when you were popular, they would advance you money. But his, his fortunes were fading for a little bit. And this, this novella didn't really turn it around, but it was popular. And it did sort of, you know, like make him even more of a public figure in terms of social justice. Yeah. It's so sad to think that he and Twain had such a, a difficult time in their advancing years, you know, with uh, their finances and things like that. Well, that's because Twain was such a fool, right? He would he would invest in this, that, and the other thing. Every get-rich-quick scheme you could think of, he was a sucker for. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't make me feel better about it, but yeah, you're right. He deserved yeah. it, but, you know, it's still sad. <laughs> Dickens, Dickens had a big family and uh, had lots of kids, and he was always worried his kids weren't going to, you know, be as productive as he, and they sort of were in his shadow. And so he just sort of you know, was worried endlessly about the, the drain on his finances and he didn't live simply and he had a mistress. So it all adds up. Nice. Uh, you know, and one of the things that you mentioned uh, when you were talking about uh, the appeal and the, the enduring um, connection that this has uh, that people feel for it um, is the simplicity of it in some ways. But um, 
it really does resonate the and the the format of the story uh the visitation of the three ghosts and and uh well four ghosts really um it it's amazing how popular it's become um as uh inspiration for others uh it's been not only adapted many many times uh, just like romeo and juliet or uh you know it's got to be one of the most adapted stories in the history of uh literature um but it's also it's used uh freely uh in in a lot of different ways i mean that's why we have muppets and mickey mouse and jim carrey and all kinds of christmas carols that's right it is a simple idea you the ghost of christmas past comes and shows you what life used to be like for you when you were younger the ghost of christmas present shows you what Christmas can be for other people, happy or sad. And then the ghost of Christmas future shows you what's going to happen if you don't change your ways. I think yeah. one of the I think one of the appeals is that we don't think we're Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> However much of a lesson there is to learn, and maybe we can be better. We think, well, we're not as bad as him. <laughs> you know, there's a right. comfort in knowing that we're not that much of a miser and we like Christmas. So yeah, we know we should change and do better and all that, but it's a little comforting to know that the guy who's being put through the ringer is awfully bad. Yeah, and also it kind of reminds me in a way, uh, like any episode of House, MD, uh, <laughs> is that you know for fifty eight minutes you 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 just made to hate Scrooge, and then okay he redeems himself at the end. It's like House, you know, he's wrong for fifty eight minutes of every sixty minutes, but those last two <laughs> minutes, you know, he saves everybody. Um, the power of redemption, I guess, uh, and the possibility of redemption, I guess, might be a big part of uh, the appeal of the story. Well, it depends how it's played because Scrooge can be nasty all the way through until right at the end. But in the novel and the novella, I should say, and in a lot of the adaptations, you see his exterior cracking pretty quickly. You see him as a young boy who's left at school rather than brought home for Christmas. Uh, yeah. You see him uh, becoming more worried about money and breaking up with the, the woman he loves. Uh, you see him feeling for the Cratchits being sort of embarrassed at how poor their lives are. So, you know. You, you realize he's not as awful as all that. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, but he's still, <laughs> he, well, you can still see his mistakes and he doesn't seem to, to correct himself too well, but, uh, and but Tiny you, Tim. But you, you know, tiny, tiny Tim. Oh, but you say, you say uh, this has been adapted many, many times. That has to be a grotesque understatement. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's uh, adapted, I think, every 16 minutes, probably. <laughs> yeah, if you look at uh, Wikipedia, you can find a page devoted to Adaptations of A Christmas Carol, public readings, theater, film, TV, audio productions, radio, opera, ballet, graphic novels, comics, on and on and on. And they have a section for TV, excuse me, they have a section for TV where they talk about uh, shows that have, you know, done like a holiday special and used the structure of A Christmas Carol. I am, this is deeply underrepresentative. I think every sitcom in the 70s, like happy, I think every sitcom seems to have used a Christmas carol one holiday season or another to put one of their characters through the ringer. They, yeah. They've all done it. I mean, I can I can just think of dozens in my head. What they list here are really sort of full adaptations with people in television, as opposed to like listing like, oh, the episode of Happy Days, the episode of Laverne and Shirley, the episode of, you know, uh, every show you can think of has used a Christmas carol uh, to 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 give themselves a break, they yeah. can do a they can do a holiday show. They've already got the structure written in it, and they get to put actors in different stuff. Even like you see radio productions, 
it seems like a lot of stations use their radio DJs and have a special show where they do that. Like in New York City, they've done it uh, in other cities around the country uh, or on the BBC radio. They've had the people that you hear every week playing these characters because they're just so familiar and so easy to identify with. Uh, in fact, my second and only uh, my second and last theatrical production was A Christmas Carol. Did you act in it as a kid or get anywhere near it? No, no. I, I was Tiny Tim. You were I Tiny was, Tim? I was in fourth grade and the eighth grade was putting on a Christmas carol. So they asked me to play Tiny Tim. Wow. And I, I, and, I and nailed it. I nailed, nailed it. it. Not easy to say, God bless us, everyone, and not feel like a fool. So <laughs> it's tough. And, and you know, you got all eyes on you for that one because that's like the big, that's oh, the yeah. big, you know, that's the big to do. Now, there's um, uh, of the, the many adaptations and let's set yours aside for a second what yeah. you were in. but of the ones that you've seen particularly screen ones uh what are the ones that uh resonate for you well the one that's at the top of my list is the alistair sims version that's what 1953 or something i don't remember what year it is uh but the alistair sims from the 50s it's british as opposed to one of the better known american ones is from 1938 uh, that's a Hollywood. One. I just watched that again. I think I think I've seen it before, but I watched it again in preparation for the show that stars Reginald Owens. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a that's a big studio one. And that is sort of a sad backstory because Christmas Carol is a holiday tradition and it became a holiday tradition on the radio every mm -hmm. year. Starting in 1935, Campbell's Soup would bring you a live production of A Christmas Carol starring Lionel Barrymore as Ooh. Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, people who don't know Lionel Barrymore, if they've seen It's a Wonderful Life, he plays Mr. Potter, the scheming, nasty, grasping businessman at the heart of that movie. He's always battling with Jimmy Stewart. Uh, you know, he says something like, you know, you once called me a bitter old man. Well, you're a bitter young man. You know, <laughs> Lionel Barrymore was just the most irascible creature. And he played good people, too, like on Dr. Kildare, the film series. But he played bad guys like nobody's business. And as soon as you think of Lionel Barrymore playing Ebenezer Scrooge, you say, oh, my God, that's perfect casting and yeah. he did it on the radio for like 20 plus years every year they would mount a live production and i listened to the 1939 version with lionel barrymore and orson wells is the narrator an all-star cast and wow. he's really good he's really fun and it's a really lovely thing you can find it on youtube of course 1939 christmas carol lionel barrymore and has the ads and everything and it's really cool and he's a great scrooge and he was supposed to play him in the feature film in 1938 but he got injured on set which meant he couldn't do the feature film and he didn't do the uh the live production that year that was done by orson wells in his stead and in the movie he recommended reginald owens who got an oscar nomination for his performance but if you see that film you can't help thinking oh what a what a missed opportunity because lionel barrymore would have just been perfect yeah yeah he's got uh I mean, talk about Bob Humbug. I mean, that guy's, he says, he says Bob Humbug when he's not even talking. Like, exactly. it just it comes off of him, you know? It just, what, uh, what's your, what's your favorite version? Is it Scrooged? I know you have fondness for that one. <laughs> well, that's not my favorite. I do have a soft spot for Scrooged, uh, which is uh, obviously a, a, an updated uh, farce version of uh, A Christmas Carol. And it's uh, directed by Richard Donner, the late, great Richard Donner, who, of course, uh, directed Superman and directed The Omen and the Lethal Weapon films and uh, the great Twilight Zone episode with William Shatner and the Gremlin on the Wing. Um, you know, Richard Donner did so many wonderful things. And I think Scrooge is on the list of uh, one of his more endearing things. Um, I, I would submit that it, uh, it may have the zaniest cast 
of all time, as far as just <laughs> pure Mad Lib. Um, if you read down the list, the, the number of people that you find that don't really belong in a movie is extraordinary. For instance, uh, it's got Gilbert Gottfried and John Forsyth, and and you think, well, that's not that strange. And Bill Murray, well, he's the star, and Alfred Woodard, and um, it's also got uh, Carol Kane, but it also has Lee Majors and <laughs> gymnast Mary Lou Retton as Tiny Tim. <laughs> And Miles Davis as a musician in the street. And yes, that's really Miles Davis. Uh, it's, it's one of the stranger casts that have ever been put together. And I think it must have been a lot of fun to be on the set. Um, I, uh, I think it's, it's pretty fun. It's a, it's a silly movie. Um, and it's, it's got Bill Murray in his sort of unlikable best. Uh, you know, because you, 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 know, you, you don't want to like Scrooge and, and, and Bill Murray makes it easy in this film because he's, he's, he's he plays a pretty sleazy tv executive who is putting on a really garish over-the-top bloated tv uh, special adaptation of a christmas carol hence mary lou renton and lee majors stars in it and uh and they at one point staple antlers onto a mouse <laughs> uh and uh it's got that as the the sort of the, the center of it but of course it's uh really about uh him being visited by the ghost and redeeming his ways because a TV executive in the eighties, what could be worse? What form of life, you know, could really be worse than a network? A TV, a TV exec in the seventies. Yeah, that's true. That, that would be worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. You got me there. I think you got me there, but you know, I saw um, a new to me version of a Christmas Carol uh, just the other night. And um, it was really fascinating. Uh, it's called uh, Carol for Another Christmas. Carol for Another Christmas. What year did it come out? Uh, it would have been 1964. And it was um, Joseph Mankiewicz uh, directed. Whoa. And it uh, was written, uh, teleplayed by Rod Serling of Twilight Zone fame, of course. And it stars, uh, um, not only does it star Peter Sellers, but it also stars Sterling Hayden. So it has a reunion of Dr. Strangelove the same year Dr. Strangelove came out. Wow. Is this for TV or film? It was for television. And uh, Sterling Hayden plays the, uh, the central character. And um, while things like Scrooge, uh, the Bill Murray one, they, they held on to some aspects of the, the moral point of Christmas Carol because it's about greed and, and selfishness and, and, uh, cynicism and pushing people away. Um, this version um, changes the, the, the point completely. The compass, uh, the, the North Star point of this entire uh, production is um, war. It's all, it's an anti-war uh, piece. And huh. Sterling Hayden plays Grudge. His name is Grudge. <laughs> um, and he's a guy that has a hard time letting things go. Apparently apparently uh and his son has died in um war and he's become he's responded by being um ultra isolationist ultra hawk aggressive um so he, he doesn't want to he wants uh, uh to uh, um, embrace the arms race fully move that forward and uh set aside any sort of uh anything that resembles negotiation or diplomacy or um, 
uh, uh, people talking. He just wants to blow things up. Is he shown like the ghosts of wars past and wars present and wars future? Yes, yes. So we have the ghosts of, uh, uh, of well, he's, his son died on Christmas Eve uh, oh. in battle. So he's visited by Jeez. the ghost of Christmas past, yeah. the ghost of Christmas, Christmas present, ghost of Christmas future, but they are all in a war motif uh, and setting. Uh, and it's really sort of intriguing. Uh, the, the ghost of Christmas past, for instance, it's a soldier who's on a, uh, a troop transport and the troop transport's going across uh, the river Styx. Uh, it's not ah. named, but that's essentially what it is. And with him are all the troops from all the wars of all time in all these transports um and the character it, the way it's written and the way he talks it, it seems like it's based on uh, frank sinatra's character in from here to eternity mm -hmm. uh, only in his his mannerisms and the way he talks he's just got that you listen to me chief like i'll <laughs> talk to you you know um it just and it's Steve Lawrence uh, doing a Frank Sinatra impression. Maybe it's maybe because it's Steve Lawrence, it feels like he's doing a Frank Sinatra impression to me. But maybe I'm, I'm being a little rough on the guy. Um, but uh, it has some hysterical uh, lines because you know Rod Serling, God bless him. Uh, you know, uh, I love Twilight Zone, and you can't you can't really over uh, appreciate what its impact was on television and, and what it did for uh, science fiction and fantasy. Um, but his writing can be a little, uh, you know, SAT vocabulary heavy, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, a little, a little, or, or uh, kind of inflated. But, so is this uh, is this an hour long? Is this an hour and a half? How long is it? An hour and a half. Oh, yeah. so it's a full TV movie. Yeah, and um, uh, really fascinating, well filmed, uh, interesting production values, some haunting things in it. The, uh, the ghost of Christmas present takes, no, I'm sorry, the ghost of Christmas, which, what well, must have been, oh, the past took him to more than one place. That, that's what threw me off for a second. So they're on a transport boat, and then the ghost of Christmas past takes him um, to Nagasaki. Oh. So, okay, so you can imagine how that's going to go. Uh, where Merry we, Christmas. Yeah, exactly. Where we encounter um, a, a beautiful singing voice of a child, and then you go into the hut and he uh, encounters um, the, the victims of the, the bomb, um, the atomic bomb, and they're children who are wrapped like mummies uh, beneath gauze, lying still while one of them sings a haunting song. And it's one of the creepiest things I've ever seen on a television. Uh, and uh, it's, it's really, really interesting. The ghost of Christmas Future is uh, shows a uh, is Robert Shaw, which is great. Uh, you know, like uh, a decade before he was doing the great monologue that he does in Jaws, mm -hmm. um, you see him in this, and he's uh, in a cloak and dressed. He looks like Satan, really, <laughs> um, quite honestly, and uh, he's really creepy and, and and menacing. And he shows a future uh, where Peter Sellers is is a leader of a, what's left of humanity and is encouraging everyone to finish each other off. Uh, essentially that it's, everybody's become so into themselves that um, a horrible dictator takes over who is so obsessed with his ego that he leads everyone to the brink of destruction um, and, uh, and demagoguery rules. 
Wow. Well, that came out in 1964. It aired on television. It was a TV special. Uh, did it air at Christmas time? Um, I wonder. Carol for another Christmas. It aired at. Uh, it must have right. It aired. Um, December, no, December 28th, ninth. They were afraid to show it before Christmas. It says they oh. aired it on December 28th. That's according you know, to IMDb. I can see that because it's not very Christmassy. There's not a lot of Christmas in it. Because like, there's yeah, no Christmas I'm imagining coming. like, you know, moms turning on the television, like, oh, let's sit down and watch something. <laughs> yeah. Children crying. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And here's the interesting backdrop is that, you know, um, when you first meet Sterling Hayden in the uh, in it, his uh, as he's talking about his son for the first time, he says, "You know, uh, left my son. Um, uh, you know, what I gave them my son. What did I get in return? I got his. Uh, I got some medals, his dog tags, and um, and his personal effects. And then the that that seems really interesting to me if you consider the backdrop of what Rod Serling did when he was in the service." Uh, you know, when he was uh, he was in the Korean War, and he his, he was charged with his his duty, his mission uh, assignment was to go through the effects of all the dead oh. soldiers. He was part of the uh, the uh, mortician, not mortician, but the undertaking. The mm -hmm. what would you call it? I don't know. They're taking care of the bodies and bringing yeah, the just, effects together and packing them up for the families. That's a depressing yeah, job. Yeah. And it and there's uh, at least three different mentions in this of, uh, you know, dead soldiers' bodies, effects going through things, medals returning things, um, and and I can't help but think of how that was influenced by his own personal experience, which he had described as horrific. You know, um, in his personal life, it was it was a really dark time for him. Um, and that was 1964, which seems to be the heyday for TV specials for Christmas. Uh, in 1966, you had How the Grinch Stole Christmas. In 65, you had A Charlie Brown Christmas. In 64, the same year as Carol for Another Christmas, you had the Rankin Bass Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And in 1962, you had the very first animated Christmas special made for TV. That's Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Love it. I love I, it. Have you watched it in a while? It's sort of, uh, you know, it's it's uh, uh, like a lot of the stuff that was done, including them. Um, it was sort of cheap animation, but they went for a stylized pop feel. They made the most of it. They didn't try and be realistic or beautiful. They just sort of went with the sort of pop art thing. So you have Mr. Magoo walking through Broadway and it's just fun stylized backdrops. It's it, it works. You know, they're they're making it on a dime, but they make it uh, fun. And it's kind of Fritz, Fritz Freeling or or no, I don't believe it is. Um, but don't I, I don't want to swear to that. But I do know that it was uh, kind of weirdly meta. Mr. Magoo been around for a while. He'd won two Oscars for his animated shorts and they were making some stuff for TV. And in this case, I think this might be the first time where Mr. Magoo became an actor. So this isn't oh. about Mr. Magoo being put through the ringer in a version of A Christmas Carol. This is about Mr. Magoo on Broadway performing A Christmas Carol for a live audience. <laughs> so that's a little weird. I'm not yeah. sure why they came up with the framing device uh, other than to let him have some accidents on the way to the uh to the to the to the theater and then afterwards when he takes his bow but you see him coming in late going on stage and then performing it you see the audience every once in a while the curtain comes down between acts it's just uh and it's mr magoo as an actor performing 
a Christmas Carol. He plays, he plays, this animated character plays Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, as opposed to normally you have the character just have it happen to them. In this case, he's performing. And in fact, it works so well. They did a whole season, a whole series of Mr. Magoo tackling as an actor, some of the big roles like the Count of Monte Cristo, Friar Tuck in a Robin Hood and things like that. So it led to a whole new life for Mr. Magoo. Uh, but it came out in 1962. It was pretty successful. And it's songs by Jules Stein and Bob Merrill, who did Funny Girl. So they aren't great songs, but they're okay. And it's a pretty solid, good version of A Christmas Carol. Mr. Magoo is good. And Jim Bacchus, I should say, the voice of Mr. Magoo, he, he's, he has a lot of fun as Ebenezer Scrooge. And the weird thing is when you start to watch two or three or four of these in a row, you see all the little tweaks and twists they do to the story. Everybody does something with it. The 1938 yeah. film version, the 50 minute radio play version I listened to. And in this version, strangely, they begin with the ghost of Christmas present and then they go to the past and then they go to the future. God knows why. I don't think it makes any <laughs> difference, but they did. And the other thing that strikes me as odd is that they start at the at the strike of one. The, the first ghost that visits Scrooge in all the stories in the original novella, they show up beginning at 1 a.m., then 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. You would think it would be midnight, the stroke of midnight, because it's become Christmas Day, technically. Uh, and that's when magic happens. But no, in the novella and all the adaptations I've seen, it's, it sticks to the 1 a.m., 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. thing. I'm not quite sure why it doesn't start at midnight, but it doesn't make I, any I difference. Could it be because 1 a.m. is like the witching hour, you know, for oh, cult oh, things? Oh, it is. I thought midnight was. Midnight's the witching hour. Yeah, midnight is. Oh, is but, it? Yeah. I, I don't know. 1 a.m. has that has that oh, no. kind of connotations too. Well, you oh, may yeah. be right. I mean, that would explain it. What, what's your suggestion, Jeff? Is it, if you're doing, especially if you're doing it on stage, is you don't want to listen to that clock chime 12 times. <laughs> you, yes, you, know, you, just, you want one, here he is. And then yep. one, two, you know, I think it's simple because if it's 12 for the first one, it's going to be one for the second and two for the third. That makes perfect sense. And it, it's, uh, it's, it, of course, began as a book, so it wouldn't matter if it rang 12 times in a novella. But right. you're right. It quickly went on stage. And uh, Dickens, when he got tired of trying to churn out a Christmas tale every year, uh, a novella, he decided the best way to keep the message alive and to keep people focused on the on the social justice that he wanted was to perform a Christmas carol. And he, of course, did readings throughout his career to the end of his life. And he did an abbreviated version of a Christmas carol in a lot of his public readings. He did it hundreds of times, including at his last public farewell performance. He did, among other things, a reading of a Christmas carol. So he would be on stage. And of course, it'd be a lot easier to say dong <laughs> than to do it 12 times. You make a good point. The, um, that, you know, his, uh, one man rendition of his own uh, piece be became uh, an inspiration for Patrick Stewart. Mm -hmm. Obviously, many many years later, obviously Patrick Stewart um, did Christmas Carol as a one man play, uh, starting in 1987, uh, and most recently in 2018, 2019 actually. Um, I was lucky enough to see it uh, in the 90s, in the early 90s in New York, and it was one of the most extraordinary things I ever saw, and I, I anticipated it being a um, uh, uh, kind of an exercise, almost like homework. I thought it was going to be, I thought it was impossible for one person to play 30 characters on stage without props or costume. You know, he was, basically had a smock, a table, a chair, a staff, and that's and lighting. And um, 
and it was mesmerizing. It was really, really fantastic, you know, uh, and um, it was largely based on uh, Dickens' tradition of doing his single performances. And then uh, uh, Patrick Stewart had been making Lady Jane in 1987 when he was, and he was staying at this hotel and he ran out of things to read and he started reading the original Christmas Carol, the novella, um, which uh, was a Christmas Carol, um, uh, a ghost story of Christmas, I think was the, uh, the, sub, the subhead, the subtitle. But, uh, and he was struck by how different it was than the traditional stage version, just the spirit, uh, the tone of it and uh, the, the voice of it. And uh, it led to that. But if you ever get a chance to see it, it's extraordinary. Uh, it's, uh, it's tremendously good. It's one of my favorite theatrical experiences. I saw it twice. I was a little afraid to see it a second time because I loved it so much the first. I almost didn't want to spoil the memory. But it was great the second time a few years later. And I'd go see it again if I had the chance. Yeah. And I think a a a a great 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 grandson or nephew or something of Dickens is actually touring with it now. Uh, he does he's done in recent years as well. He tours with the one man show based on the script that Dickens himself used. So a lot of people do that. Simon Callow did a good one man version. Uh, there was a good one man version on Broadway or two or three person version uh, that was mostly one person with Jefferson Mays, uh, who's a terrific actor. He did it, uh, and that was really fun too. Um, that was with also uh, Simon Ca Cowell, Callow, Callow, not uh, the actor Simon Callow, not the not the oh. American Idol guy Simon Cowell. Blew he would be brain. he would be a good Scrooge though. He needs to be Scrooge, <laughs> you know. He needs to be put through the ringer. No, there's a great actor Simon Callow who's done uh, uh, biographies of Orson Welles and other people, and he's a marvelous stage actor and uh, and been in lots of films as too. And he's done he's done numerous Charles Dickens stuff on stage as well as a Christmas Carol. Um, he's done like a one man show of Dickens and a one man show of A Christmas Carol. Uh, the Jefferson Maze was a lot of whiz bang special effects and props and stuff. And I thought, ah, you know, Patrick Stewart didn't need any of that, but it worked well too. It was, it was a yeah. good production. Yeah. Uh, did, the ones you saw, were they both in New York? Yes. Yeah. And how far apart were they? Were they the same cycle or? Uh, the, the, the 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 Jefferson Mays it was like a decade. No, no, this Patrick Stewart. The two oh, years. it was like I think three or five years apart. He oh, had okay. st he started doing it in a number of years. He'd go back and forth, do it in London, then New York, then London, then New York. So I, I think I had waited a few years and I got to see it again, and I knew I didn't want to miss it. So I, was, I, had, uh, I had a bid break. Yeah, I was I was very happy to see that he he had done it just a few years ago. Uh, sad that I didn't get a chance to see it again, but sort of enthused that uh, he still to take that on it he's talked about what a physically challenging you know performance that is uh mentally challenging so well, it's great that he's still doing it well it's been taped of course and that that's great fun you can also get it on audio so it's uh it's uh, well worth checking out uh you can probably watch the video of it you can probably watch you can hear the audiobook version of it it's it's really great yeah it's got some that may be actually you know the alistair sim film is from 1951 that's okay. the my favorite film version, but actually my favorite adaptation of A Christmas Carol has probably got to be Patrick Stewart's one man show. Not fair to say because you can't have that experience without, you know, tackling him and making him go into a theater. But it is it is just a, a marvelous and really does capture the spirit of, of the novella completely. Yeah, I'm so glad I changed your mind. Yes. <laughs> I'm just joking. That's so great that you got to see it twice. The um, uh, the other one that I. I always enjoyed was the George C. Scott. 
yeah. one. You know, I think that that one is, um, it's really loyal to, have you ever looked at the illustrations in the original published uh, form? No, I think they're by Leach or somebody. Yeah. 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 It's, it's surprising how loyal, uh, you know, the, well, the, the 1930s one really is very, very close to the illustrations. Um, and the illustrations are not terrific to, <laughs> I, by my view, but, uh -huh. uh, but they have certainly um, had a meaningful uh, influence because you could see right away that there's certain uh, aspects of the way his room is portrayed, the way the ghosts are portrayed, the way Scrooge looks with his hat that uh, really, really echoed in a lot of the, Holly, uh, the Hollywood adaptations. Well, we mentioned that the Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol was the first TV animated Christmas special. First one made especially for TV. And then there was a wave of them right away. 64 was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And that was, of course, done by Rankin Bass, mm. uh, this company that farmed out a lot of work to J Japan, where they did this stop motion animation, which they called Animagic. And uh, it just had this weird, but it felt handmade and charming. And it felt alive in a way that animation and live people don't. It just felt almost, I guess, magical in a way. And yeah. Rudolph was a huge success right off the bat. And so they made a whole series of their second production right after Rudolph was The Cricket on the Hearth, a stop motion version of the Dickens novella. Uh, they had Ryder McDowell as the voice of the cricket and Danny and Marlo Thomas playing a father and daughter in that adaptation. Uh, again, I didn't like the chimes or the cricket on the hearth. And in looking all this stuff up, I found out that there were it was hugely successful stage productions all over the world. Uh, it was done in Russia and Vladimir Lenin left during a performance of a stage production because he found it saccharine and boring. So in wow. this case, I agree with Lenin. <laughs> <laughs> you don't often get to say that, but I do. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, uh, and what year was the, uh, was that one? Was it uh, cricket? Cricket was, I assume, 65, but I'm making that up. I'll have to look it up. Oh, uh, 64 was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And then they just started coming out with one rank and bass after another. You know, they started doing all sorts of stuff. And I didn't know this. Hayao Miyazaki, the great animation legend, he was working at one of the companies that did work for rank and bass. So he, oh, he had a hand in that stuff. Oh, that stuff is terrific. And, and it was, it was uh, there's such a great callback to it in Elf, you know, uh, John Favreau obviously sending a Valentine back to the Rankin Bass um, with the whale, the narwhal, and um, uh, at the beginning of Elf. Hope yes. You your, hope you find your dad. <laughs> uh, the Cricket uh, on the Hearth was 1967, and there was one in 1966. I think that was already sort of almost done, and so they uh, they consider this the follow up because it was the one where they they sort of greenlit it, and that's the first one actually directed by Rankin Bass. And it's a hand-drawn, I shouldn't say. I thought it was stop-motion, but Cricket on the Hearth, they went back and forth a little bit. They did mostly best known for their stop-motion stuff, but they did do hand-drawn stuff as well, and that's what the Cricket on the Hearth was. Yeah, the, the stop-motion stuff is so endearing. I haven't seen the Cricket on the Hearth. Um, maybe, have you uh, seen that one? You said you saw it. No, no, I haven't seen oh, that one. Seen I read it, but I did not watch it. Yeah. Um, I think Rankin-Bass, it's... Uh, it's fascinating the way that that has connected with people. And I think you're right. The fact that it's not live action. I think there's a certain amount of fatigue, if you will, that uh, people have, or um, I don't know, it's, uh, there's something that, I think the reason that Simpsons have lasted so long is that without um, human faces, I think that they 
they don't wear on people as much. I think people get tired of uh, seeing the same people for a long time. Not only did, of course, the Simpsons spoof a Christmas Carol and do a Christmas Carol, they actually spoofed Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol in one, <laughs> one episode. See, you know, the Magoo, uh, making him an actor, that means that he doesn't have to have a moral inventory. He doesn't have to be a bad person. Because Scrooge, if you if have to have some sort of moral flaw for the ghost to come visit. And, and Magoo would have been, he would have been laid out, his, his personal life would have been laid out. So they had to make him an actor. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, he's a lonely man with just his nephew and his dog and, you know, his mother and grandmother. So you're right. He would have had to be people thought he was nuts, but he was just nearsighted. He just needed good glasses. Yeah. Lasix. I mean, that, there's those guys <laughs> should be he they're missing a huge licensing opportunity. there. Lasik. <laughs> I think it's uh, Magoo could make it happen. Um, Maya, you're a big uh, Rankin Bass fan, aren't you? Yeah. What's your favorite uh, of the Rankin Bass stuff? I mean, speaking of the the Japanese anime influences, I I love how you can see that start to dominate their movies as you know time progresses. You can see it a little bit in how the elves are animated in their uh, animated. Did they do the ho- they did the Hobbit or the Lord? They did both, right? They, they did, did the Hobbit and the Return of the King. Yeah, because yeah, you the- can see that in how the elves are so graceful and doe-eyed, and then you can really see it in one of their last movies, The Last Unicorn, which mm-hmm. is an anime, like in terms of how everyone looks. Um, yeah, just the kind of beauty and subtlety of it, I'm, I'm really a fan of. And then I am a fan of the stop motion because, you know, I think it speaks to the spirit of Christmas and Toyland if you're watching stop motion puppets I think there's a kind of timelessness and magic to the you know timeless Christmas feeling of watching you know material possessions and you know Mm -hmm. material things just become imbued with life and purpose and uh, a sense of family Mm -hmm. um, that I think that the the stop motion speaks to better than hand-drawn animation. Sure. Um, Toy Story, when it when it exists without Rankin Bass being part of our shared consciousness, you know, uh, and it's funny because, you know, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer started life. He was invented uh, to as a as a retail um, uh, gimmick entity, you know, marketing. Um, and so having toys actually star in the specials is, is, is a pretty smart way to keep selling them. My favorite thing about Rankin Bass, I think, is when you would have a character tremble <laughs> or their eyes would like right pop open like uh, they would they would dilate quickly and as reaction i just see rudolph the eye dilating trembling winter <laughs> warlock the casting was fantastic they got great voices they, they they were really adept at um and some unlikely choices you know with some of the, the you know uh, with fred astaire and burl lives and stuff I, I guess not unlikely but uh i wouldn't necessarily thought of them as you know being some of the the ideal candidates for those those parts but. yeah fred astaire was the was the star of santa claus is coming to town he was the narrator and yeah. that's my favorite rank and bass is from 1970 i think it's the citizen kane of stop motion animation it's the origin story of santa claus it's so great at one point lauren michaels the creator of saturday night live uh had the rights to all the rank and bass stuff and my friend of mine were trying to pitch to him to like do a stage production where act one is Santa Claus is coming to town. Act two is Rudolph. And you do it with puppetry in front of not like at a, not like in a Lion King method, but in more of a homemade easy. You can imagine doing it yourself method. 
mm-hmm. that would make it charming. Uh, when Rudolph is done on stage and they tour with it every once in a while, it's done very sort of like kitty style. It's done for little kitties and it's very, you know, just unimaginative. And I think there's a great stage production to be done of those stories that could bring them to life by using your imagination, not needing big bells and whistles, but being able to just have a little red, you know, light will be Rudolph flying through the air and, and they'll accept, it. you know, so Julie it's, uh, Taymor was on the show. We need to get her back and pitch this. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. I, I yeah, yeah, absolutely. She she knows yeah. about it. Well, you know, she came on, but uh, somehow I forgot to ask her about Spider-Man. <laughs> I really did. Like, we talked for the whole show. I never mentioned Spider-Man. I don't think it even came up. Oh, she's, she's probably she probably thanked you. She said this is the best interview she ever had. She was, no, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think Rankin and Bess. Oh, can I, please, I was please. just thinking about something? I mean, yeah. so much of their movies, even if they're not a Christmas carol, they have the kind of Scrooge arc incorporated that is like a detestable, campy, uh, not that Scrooge is campy, but over the top uh, pathological villain who just really needs like a final push to actually becoming an extraordinary, exemplary, kind person. Like in Santa <laughs> Claus is Coming to Town, what's the warlock's name? The winter warlock. The winter warlock, and then you've got um, just need a gift. abominable in in Rudolph, and then yeah, he's just to got a lesser a bad extent, you have Snow Miser and Heat Miser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those guys are not redeemed, I don't think. But and her Burgermeister, Burgermeister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who who uh, just needed to loosen up. Yeah. 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 There, there's some great. Who, who else has villains? Like uh, only Christmas villains. You know, you don't have that many. So uh, Rankin Bass, we love you. You know, I think Dickens and Rankin Bass should have worked together. That would be tricky. It would be tricky. It would be, it would give it a nice little Oliver twist. <laughs> um, so uh, there's also, I, I started watching a horror film version of Christmas Carol. I didn't get very far into that. Um, but uh, it's amazing. Would you say Mickey Mouse Christmas Carol or Muppets Christmas? Muppets or Mickey? Who? Which of those? Oh, oh the Muppets, because Michael Caine is uh, gives a great performance. I think. Yeah, I agree. He's a very good Scrooge and very yeah. just rooted in what's going on. Uh, I, I think that's a solid production. Yeah. What about uh, the um, Christmas Carol? Uh, the uh, the version that uh, Zemeckis did with. Uh, Jim Carrey. Not a good idea. Unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, that, that technology never quite worked, did it? Yeah, you know, I mean, I you gotta give Zemeckis credit, uh, you know, over the course of these films that he made, you know, Polar Express and Beowulf and Christmas Carol. Um, you know, he was making his mistakes in public, refining this version of of what, you know, uh, motion capture, face capture, facial performance capture could be mm-hmm. um while jim cameron was doing his on avatar in private you know zemeckis was making his mistakes in public on a series of films um and uh the two of them got to close to the same place but cameron gets more credit i think because he didn't have uh his you know kind of half measure version in public and maybe it's easier to do it when you're an ape well there's that you know, yeah. when you've got when you've got Andy Circus and you're doing the Planet of the Apes or 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 King Kong, though, even then, I would say motion capture motion capture is great. But going back to stop motion animation, 
my favorite King Kong is still the original 1933 wow. because it feels alive and it has a personality and a character that's really uh, magnetic and yeah. really fun. It really, it just works. The, the, the special effects are, are, you know, crude by today's standards, but it still works just like, you know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and all He's the other boss. Rankin Bass, they work, you know, they still yeah. work because they're, yeah. they're creative and they work for the story and they're, they're part of the whole aesthetic. And they don't yeah. need to be perfect or, you know, convince you. They don't need to be digital effects that are smooth and seamless. Somehow when the seams are showing, it feels a little more real. Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And the immersion of it, if, uh, if the universe holds, if it's true to itself and, and you go into it, it doesn't matter if it's Wizard of Oz or, or uh, you know, uh, King Kong, it, you know, any of the classics, they, they still hold you because they, they're true to that immersive you know, uh, experience. Mm -hmm. So, well, fantastic. Um, well, this has uh, been a very fun conversation. It's nice talking to you again, Michael. Maya. It's always good to talk to you and Maya and, and my Christmas music before we go. Uh, my favorite new Christmas album is one from Maybe. 1971 and 73. It's Asalto Navideño. It's apparently the great salsa Christmas album. I was not familiar with it before. It's by Willie Colon, the New Yorker, and Hector Laveau, the Puerto Rican. So instead of going to see West Side Story, you can actually listen to music by Puerto Ricans. So <laughs> check out Asalto Navideño. You can find it on all your streaming stuff. They did one album in 71, another one in 73. And normally you'll find them both put together. So it's like 16 tracks. Great, great fun. Really great Christmas songs. Nice, nice. Uh, have you heard of uh, the Pogues yet this year? I have not yet heard the Pogues. No, I have not heard it uh, in public. I did just get whammed last night. So I finally heard the original <laughs> Last Christmas last night uh, at Panera. So my friend went out weeks ago, and I somehow had avoided it till now. So yeah, Pogues, I haven't heard it yet. I don't hear the Pogues much in America. They don't play that in public a lot. Yeah, yeah. You know, because of the yeah. cursing. I always play it. I guess I haven't played it yet. So that's, that's when I know it's Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thank you, Mr. Michael Giltz, journalist and good friend to the show, and Maya, and Merry Christmas to both of you, and Happy New Year. God bless us. God bless us, everyone. Tiny Tim, take us out. <laughs>